Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. From WDEV in Waterbury, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. Thanks for joining us. It's Friday, October 6th, and there's a lot going on and a lot to get to that we need to discuss and decipher today. Nuclear weapons, Speaker Kevin McCarthy, the mayor of Burlington, Senator Robert Menendez, a little Donald Trump, uh, and a lot more. If you want to join us, and I hope you will, uh, please give us a call, especially in the 1030 uh, half an hour because uh, I, I'm going to try to open the phones to everybody. 244-1777. 244-1777. My email is vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Welcome to an, a new listener, my friend Lynn, who is tuning in for the first time. Uh, I think we've got her portable radio uh, turned up and to the right station. So welcome to Lynn, the new listener. She's interested in politics, so we're going to go a little heavy in poli- on politics today for for Lynn, our friend and new listener. Uh, but first, the Friday reading. Shortly after he left office, former President Donald Trump shared apparently classified information about nuclear submarines with an Australian businessman during an evening of conversation at his Mar-a-Lago private club in Florida. This, according to the New York Times. The businessman, Anthony Pratt, a billionaire member of Mar-a-Lago who runs one of the world's largest cardboard companies, went on to share the sensitive details about submarine locations with several others. Mr. Trump's disclosures potentially endangered the U.S. nuclear fleet, according to the article. Federal prosecutors working for the special counsel, Jack Smith, learned about Trump's disclosures of the secrets to Mr. Pratt, first revealed by ABC News and interviewed him as part of their investigation into the former president's handling of classified documents, which, of course, Prosecutor Pratt has indicted Trump over. Pratt is now among more than 80 people who 80 people who prosecutors have identified as possible witnesses who could testify against Mr. Trump at the classified documents trial, which is scheduled to start in May in federal district court in Fort Pierce, Florida. So uh, apparently uh, Mr. Trump has uh, shared the locations of submarines, among other information. During his talk with Mr. Pratt, Trump revealed at least two pieces of information about the submarine's tactical capacities. Those include how many nuclear warheads they have and how close they could get to their Russian submarine counterparts without being detected. Spokesman for Mr. Trump did not immediately respond to requests for comment. This is all over the news and uh, where it fits in to the indictment of Trump on the classified documents case is, uh, it seems to me it'll be a part of it, but not all of it. Trump's been known to share classified information verbally on other occasions during an Oval Office meeting in 2017, shortly after he fired FBI Director James Comey, 
Trump revealed sensitive classified information to two Russian officials and well into the presidency, into his presidency, he posted on Twitter a classified photo of an Iranian launch site. Uh, we know by now that, of course, uh, the former president would say by virtue of being president, he can do whatever he wants. And um, and we now have a collision between that view and the Justice Department, which uh, views the handling of classified information as um, his classified information as a crime. So here we go. Uh, update number two. It seems that uh, Kevin McCarthy, the former Speaker of the House, uh, who is now just a mere member of the House of Representatives from California, uh, there are two, uh, maybe others, uh, vying now to replace him. One is Steve Scalise. The other is Jim Jordan. He is the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, one of them, Scalise, supports uh, aid to Ukraine. Jordan does not. Jordan has been a, I would say, firebrand and and big, big Trump supporter. He even said on TV the other day that he would welcome Trump being Speaker of the House uh, as well as President. So uh, you, that's going to play out over the next few weeks. The House is on recess. They will come back on Tuesday and they will... They will uh, have a, a, a kind of a panel discussion about who, where those candidates for speaker will uh, make their case to the membership. As you know, McCarthy was uh, relieved of his duties by a combination of eight uh, hard right members of the Republican caucus, along with all Democrats who voted to oust him. First time that's ever happened in history. And uh, we're the the house is therefore in a, a form of paralysis, and who knows where this is going to go? As I said last week on the show, it's only going to get worse. <laughs> Some people think the worse is good, uh, especially those eight people who voted to out those eight Republicans who voted to oust McCarthy. Um, they, uh, you know, they're they're it's part of a new breed. Uh, where it's less about governing than it is about uh, driving your ideological message, raising money online. Uh, and we need to do a whole show on this, about the changing nature of the political discourse. We'll get our Congresswoman Becca Ballant on the show. Now, stick around because uh, we're going to do equal uh, bipartisan examination of scandal here. We've just talked about the Republicans. Uh, in the 1030 slot, I'm going to talk about the indictment of New Jersey Senator Robert Menendez from my home state. Uh, there's an article in the Times yesterday about his wife uh, crashing a a car, a Mercedes, uh, and killing a, uh, a pedestrian in Bogota, New Jersey, shortly before uh, she and Menendez were married. Uh, boy, I'll tell you, this story just keeps getting darker and darker. We'll do that at 1030, but uh, we're going to take a break. And after we come back, we're going to be joined by uh, Ward Hayes Wilson, who is an expert on nuclear weapons and is the author of a new book on the subject. We'll be right back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. 
We're back. It's Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint. Did you ever wonder about nuclear weapons? Our parents did. Many of you did. The film Oppenheimer brought it all back to me when I watched it. But for most of us, the grave threats of nuclear miscalculation and catastrophe, what John F. Kennedy called the Sword of Damocles, continues today, even if we don't want to think about it. Maybe it's the Internet or the fast pace of society or something else, but we don't seem to think or talk about it the way we did back in the 60s and 70s during the Cold War, except in deep policy conversations in Washington or New York. Why not? And why don't we talk about how to get rid of the weapons that can destroy us? Our next guest has been writing and thinking about this subject for as long as I've known him, which is about 35 years, and he makes what he calls a realist case for the elimination of nuclear weapons. His name is Ward Hayes Wilson, and he is the author of the upcoming book, It Is Possible, A Future Without Nuclear Weapons. Ward Hayes Wilson, welcome to the show. (laughs) Hi, Kevin. It's great to be on. (laughs) Okay, why this book and why now? Um, Because nuclear weapons continue to be a threat. Um, they, um, the fact that deterrence has lasted this long is a, a great thing that the, the mutual threat back and forth to use nuclear weapons if you're attacked has, um, at least uh, has helped at least to influence people not to use nuclear weapons. Although it's not clear necessarily that it's the only reason we haven't had a war It's hard to know whether deterrence works or not. But at any rate, it can't last. Over the long run, uh, it's inherently flawed and it will fail. It it can't last because uh, somebody's going to make a a mistake or a miscalculation? It can't last because it has a – and this goes right to the heart of the argument. It can't last because it has a component that is prone to fail. Deterrence has a, a component that not only can fail, it has failed in the past. And that component is us, human beings. Human beings are fallible. We make mistakes. No one's perfect, not the lowest soldier to the highest leader. Um, we're all imperfect. And nuclear deterrence is a process that's driven by human beings. We're involved at every step. Uh, we make the threats. Others uh, get hear the threats, uh, evaluate them, and decide how to respond. So we're involved at every step. If human beings are fallible, and if we're involved in human be- in, in nuclear deterrence, and we are, then nuclear deterrence is inherently flawed by definition, which means that one day we'll we'll run out of luck and we'll end up in a catastrophic war. Most people say that this debate is a contest between sort of the the hard-headed realists and the dewy-eyed idealists. Nobody likes nuclear weapons, but the realists don't think there's a realistic way to get rid of them, and the idealists have been saying we should get rid of them for seven, seven decades. The problem is that when survival is on the line, most of us want the more realistic plan. Tell us about your proposal and how it changes the debate. Well, 
so the debate has been going on inside this framework of realist versus idealist for 70 years. And it's essentially because the first two proposals for getting rid of nuclear weapons were idealistic ones. They proposed giving the secret of the bomb to the Russians and setting up world government. And those are both, um, you know, laudable plans, but neither of them is particularly likely to work. And so what happened is that the, the advocates for nuclear weapons looked at those two proposals and they jumped to the conclusion, partly because it was helpful to them to be able to win the debate, they jumped to the conclusion that all proposals to eliminate nuclear weapons are idealistic nonsense. All proposals are um, utopian dreams that involve changing uh, human nature. And that's just not so. That I mean, uh, that is part of the reason why this book makes such a difference, because it has it overturns that false narrative and says, yes, there are realistic reasons to get rid of nuclear weapons. You talk about disinvent. You talk about the, the collision or the tension between the term disinvention and technological evolution and how nuclear weapons are actually not very useful. Why don't you tell us about that? Oh, this is a... When advocates for nuclear weapons say we can't get rid of nuclear weapons, they say this thing. They say, you can't disinvent nuclear weapons. They kind of, they sound sad and they shrug their shoulders and then they, you know, they say we'll have, you know, the nuclear weapons will exist into the future as far as the eye can see because, you know, they're so valuable. Everyone will always want them. You can't get rid of them. Disinvention, I, I used to, think about this problem because, you know, how can you disinvent nuclear weapons? Maybe you could take the secret and hide it in a special vault and have five locks and all this stuff. I spent years struggling with this. The fact is, it eventually occurred to me that disinvention doesn't exist. It's a process that has never happened. There is no technology that has ever been disinvented. There are no laboratories and got with guys and women with white lab coats who then disinvent this or that piece of technology. So there's something false about that. And I went back and looked at and tried to start over with the problem and say, well, how, how does technology actually go away? How does any technology go away? I realized that human beings have evolved their technology, have improved their technology for 2,000 years, 6,000 years. As long as we've had tools, we've been trying to make them better. The process that that goes through is pretty uniform across time. It's a four-step process of invention, adoption, use, and eventual abandonment. And this got me focused on what I think is the right question. This invention is not the question you need to ask. The question you need to ask is, when do human beings abandon a piece of technology? Why did um, Blackberries get shoved aside by smartphones? Right. You know, why did the Edsel not work and you know, other cars sold? When you look at it uh, carefully over time, you find its utility. The reason that people abandon, particularly weapons, you know, you might keep 
a pretty piece of art just because it's pretty, not because it's useful. But when you, but that's not really technology. When you keep a piece of technology, almost always it's because it's useful. So the question of nuclear weapons, how to get rid of nuclear weapons, isn't about disinvention or idealism or any of these things. It's about the utility of the weapons. Are they actually useful? So, okay, and you argue in the book that it, they are not useful. So, and this this argument takes place against the backdrop of you know Putin rattling sabers around the use of nuclear weapons, which he just did the other day again. Uh, you know, uh, North Korea wanting to get nuclear weapons. So, take us through the the utility argument around nuclear weapons on the battlefield. Okay. So on the battlefield, there are three places we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the battlefield. We're going to talk about uh, war between countries, you know, blowing up cities, and deterrence, which is the thing that people always say. So the battlefield, you know, in a, on a typical battlefield, the two different sides are a third of a mile to a few yards apart. The, your front line is right next to their front line. Um, um a 10 kiloton nuclear weapon and 10 kilotons is the the majority of the russian tactical quote unquote battlefield nuclear weapons that are land based have a 10 kiloton nuclear warhead so take that as a as a there are smaller ones there are bigger ones but just take 10 for an example uh that has a an area of maximum destruction when it explodes of a mile, a circle that is has a diameter of a mile, and and lesser effects that go out to four miles. If your guys are within a third of a mile to a few yards with his their guys, and you drop a nuclear weapon on their frontline troops, you're going to kill some of your own troops. It's it's not a useful weapon on the front line because your the troops are so close together. But okay, maybe you could use it behind the battle lines on a supply depot or something. But a 10 kiloton weapon can spread fatal radiation as much as 25 miles downwind in an hour. So, and further, less harmful effects, hundreds or thousands of miles farther than that. So the problem with nuclear weapons on the battlefield is that you basically, if you try to, it's, it's almost it's virtually impossible to use them and you shouldn't take my word for it um when putin was talking the most about using nuclear weapons last spring or maybe it was the fall before he did a he did a string of um threats and the new york times the institute for the study of war and general david petraeus all came out in that week there may have been some other sources that i missed and they all said in different ways, actually, it's really hard to use nuclear weapons on the battlefield. So there's this consensus in Washington that basically battlefield nuclear weapons aren't very good weapons. And the other way you know that that's true is that in 1991, President George H.W. Bush, Bush Sr., unilaterally, without a treaty, retired 7,000 tactical nuclear weapons from Europe and around the world. And the military didn't complain, didn't raise an objection. They didn't say, you know, we've got to have these weapons in order to be able to defend Europe. 
and eventually the Russians uh, disarmed a good deal of their tactical nuclear weapons as well, also unilaterally. But can but, I ask, can I ask you this question on that? Doesn't yeah, that yeah, yeah. require rational thinkers? I mean, George H. W. Bush, rational thinker. Uh, if you have a crazy, how do you account in that argument for the crazy people? The guy like Putin who doesn't care about killing his old, so, his own soldiers or what his reputation is in the world. Um, I think that um, the it, it's it's hard to imagine a truly crazy person getting control of a country, and uh, even and put yourself in the shoes of a ruthless dictator, an an immoral ruthless dictator. You want tools that work. Yeah, right. You know, you don't you don't arm your palace guards with dynamite because it's the most powerful weapon they can have. Yeah, you want to stay rich and gun. power. You want to stay rich and powerful yeah. and eating really good food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. or yeah. whatever, or whatever your particular. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So even no no one wants to keep a weapon that is. Uh, not very useful and dangerous. You want to spend your money on weapons you can actually use to conquer the next door country instead of. So I, it's possible that you could have a world in which everyone had got rid of their nuclear weapons and someone would become obsessed with them and say, I'm going to build them nonetheless. But it's very unlikely. And even if it were, no one country, even armed with nuclear weapons, can take on the world. Um, you know, uh, the U.S. has all these stealth. So say say a dictator built a, an arsenal. The physicists, and I used to hang around Princeton University and talk to some really smart physicists. The physicists I've talked to say it's really hard to build an arsenal larger than 100 weapons. So if you without getting caught. Eventually, the, the signs, the traces of it are too easy to, you know, there's now satellite imagery that allows people in universities who are not part of the Defense Department to, like, discover tunnels where the North Koreans are, uh, you know, hiding their, their mobile nuclear weapons. Um, in fact, the buildup in Western China of Chinese weapons was announced in the New York Times because of publicly sourced intelligence like this. Right. So it's really hard to build a, a secret arsenal. And even if you had 100 weapons, you're fighting the whole world. How are you going to, how are you, who, you know, you're going to, how are you going to do that? And if there's a treaty that eliminates nuclear weapons and you build a secret arsenal, you basically only have a six-month head start, maybe nine months. But you've got to conquer the entire world in nine months because as soon as you announce you've got nuclear weapons, everybody else starts building them again. Right. So, And you've got to deal with the U.S. stealth weapons and uh, on and on and on. It's, if they were great weapons, it would be different. But this myth that a madman with a single bomb can conquer the world is just nonsense. Okay. Can we move to what we all grew up with, which is the mushroom cloud, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and now the Oppenheimer movie in which, you know, it's portrayed really as the end of the world. And, uh, 
you know, you drop a, a, a nuclear weapon on a city, say Kiev in Ukraine, and everyone surrenders. Can you talk about that and why you think that is not a valid scenario anymore? So it's a, it's, we don't have enough time. <laughs> the fact is that um, research over the last 20 years, the opening of archives in the U.S. and Russia and Japan, have showed that, in fact, the Japanese didn't surrender because their cities were bombed. It's not surprising because, actually, we bombed 68 cities in Japan that summer, and one of them we killed more people, and most of them we created – and some of them we created more damage than when we used the atomic bombs. So um, it's actually what happened is that the, the Japanese leadership met in June, and they said the absolute requirement for continuing the war is for the Russians to stay neutral because the, so- the Soviets at that time, the Soviets had signed a neutrality pact with Japan. And the Japanese knew they, they might be able to hold off one superpower attacking from one direction, you know, right. long enough to inflict enough casualties to get a better deal for surrender. They were never going to be able to hold off the U.S. attacking from the south and the Russians attacking from the north. When the Russians declare war. It's less than 36 hours later the Japanese signal they're going to surrender. So I know everyone thinks that bombing Hiroshima was crucial to winning the war. The fact is the history shows that and, – and what happened after that is we learned the wrong lesson. What we learned is this this lesson that's kind of created a, a hugely inflated reputation for nuclear weapons. They're these incredible you know, miracle weapons. Drop one bomb, you win the war. Right. And um, and so I would say nuclear weapons are virtually in terms of utility. Nuclear weapons are all reputation and almost no utility. Uh, all, as I like to say, plastic, all hat and no cattle. Exactly. Even the even the um, the classic scenario of nuclear war that people first thought about in the fifties and sixties, where the U.S. and Russia fight a, a nuclear war, and that scenario, uh, and there used to be arguments that you could potentially quote unquote win that war. U.S. and the Soviets stood head and shoulders above all the other countries after World War II. And you could imagine a war where they fought with nuclear weapons. They were both devastated, but one of them could recover fast enough to essentially, you could argue, they had won. That won't happen today because we now live in a multipolar world. It's not just two powers. It's a whole bunch of powers. There's China. There's Europe. And – if you Japan is much stronger, if if the U.S. and the Russians fought a nuclear war, you just leave the Chinese in charge. You know they're now the strongest power in the world, and they'll use their influence. You know they're already aggressively moving to expand their influence around the world. And if you remove the counterbalance of the U.S. and and Russia, and the same is true for a war between the U.S. and China. Then the Russians are left, and they'll try to conquer the world. Fighting a nuclear war means that your country will be left devastated, poisoned, um, starving, 
And any influence over the course of events in the world that you may have had, any leadership you ever had, any ability to maintain your own independence that you've had just goes away. Nuclear war between countries is it's not exactly suicidal. Some people would survive, but it's it's it is ridiculous. It's not actually uh, sensible in any way. Okay. so. So, so okay, let me just say. Oh yeah, go ahead. So we've done the battlefield, and we've done the. So, the the answer to the question: Are nuclear weapons useful weapons? Is they're not useful in the battlefield. You know, you you can use them, but it'll create a mess. You'll kill your own guys, and it, it'll create problems all all around. You'll kill any civilians in the area. You don't want to use them against in a in a country versus country strategic war. Because blowing up cities, because that'll just mean that somebody else will rule over you when you're done. So their military utility that I like to say about nuclear weapons and war fighting, you know, city city busting. It's like having a pistol that shoots one bullet out the way you're aiming and another one back into your face. Right. You know, it's really it's stupid. So their military utility is virtually nothing. I mean. There are a few imaginary scenarios where you might be able to use one for a sensible purpose, but you know we've spent five point five billion dollars so far on nuclear weapons, and is that really money we can spare on weapons that we don't really want to use? And and lest people think that you are a soft, uh, as I said earlier, dewy-eyed peacenik. Um, uh, you, you that that's that, that is not the crowd you hang out with uh you hang out with the federation of american scientists and the uh, various well, gov- and governments around the world and the us army war college maybe you could talk a little bit about the the folks in the military you know the so-called tough guys who actually agree with this argument of yours i had a i was having a long conversation with an american with a us um Army colonel who spent most of his career in Europe studying using nuclear weapons, and he's currently involved in um, out, outside normal channels negotiations with the Pakistanis who want to build a tactical nuclear weapon. And he wrote a really persuasive paper, and he said, "Look, if you're to the Pakistanis, he said, look, if you're building tactical nuclear weapons because of our experience in Europe." You've misread the history because what we decided out of Europe and looking at this for you know 40 years is that it makes no sense to use tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield. And he goes into a lot of detail about you've got to identify the target. You've got to make sure many of your troops are nearby. You've got to figure out which way the wind is blowing. You've got to get fire control and talk to the guys who are going to launch it and get the code from Washington that allows and on and on and on. It's very persuasive. I went. I was asked to speak at the, what was then the A-10 Directorate in the Pentagon, which is was the Office of Policy Planning and Strategy on Nuclear Weapons. They it was a it's not where they make policy particularly. They they cycle guys through um, to give them some experience thinking about nuclear weapons issues, um, and the civilians. There, the civilian analysts hated what I said because their jobs depend on nuclear weapons being important. Right. But the B-52 bomber pilots and the navigators and the bombardiers 
and uh, said, hey, come on, after the talk was over, they said, hey, come on back to our cubicles. And I went back there and I wanted to change out of my you know, suit. And they said, yeah, you can change in here, but wait, we have to go clear all the anything written out of it because it's right. all top secret. Right. So, and, I, and then we just sat around for 45 minutes and talked. And they fundamentally, we, we get along because I talk military history. I talk pragmatism. I'm not saying we should get rid of nuclear weapons because, you know, we'll feel bad if we use them or they're horrible or something. Yeah, or, the, or they're morally wrong. Yeah, I right. think they are morally wrong. It's hard to argue, but I don't think that's enough. People, when your survival is on the line, you're willing to do things that are immoral to survive. Sure. You're willing to use, you know, so uh, I don't, I think... I think you need two arguments. I think you need a practical argument like this one, and then other people can make a moral argument, which you know can motivate people who are driven by that. But I, I want to protect my country. I want us to be safe, and I want us to be wealthy. And I don't think we should continue to spend trillions of dollars on nuclear weapons when they, you know, they're the only outcome that we could possibly expect, given that deterrence will eventually fail. I mean, it has to. It's not a question of if. It's just a question of when. So Why would you keep... I, so I gotta... I, I, yeah, right. I, I gotta Go ask ahead. you about your book jacket. Uh, you know, people get blurbs on the back of their books. You, I've never seen blurbs like this. You have, I think, endorsements of your argument from five to six Nobel Peace Prize Seven. winners. Seven. So Seven you've Nobel got former Costa Rican President Oscar Arias uh, right on down the line, uh, which would seem to validate your your argument. Well, I mean, there's generals on the book jacket. This isn't – again, this isn't yeah. the dewy-eyed liberals. Yeah. No, and, you know, I – it's been really gratifying and overwhelming to get, you know, psychiatrists psychologists and physicists and, uh, you know, activists and religious leaders and generals and, you know, this, uh, I, and, and people who are former presidents and current presidents uh, of, of countries who say that this is something that's essential for us to do. You know, in the United States, we're kind of insulated. We think everyone basically thinks like we do and that, Everyone likes nuclear weapons. The fact is, there's a treaty out there, that the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, that now has a hundred, I think it's a hundred, a hundred countries have signed on to it, and more than 80 have ratified it and entered it, and it's entered, you know, the treaty has entered into force for those countries that have signed it. The fact is, no, no one but the nine nuclear countries and some of their allies think that nuclear weapons are a great thing. If if you're a little country and you want to build nuclear weapons, you can do it. North Koreans, if you look at the, their GDP, they're 113th in the world, according to the UN, in terms of GDP. So subtract the nine nuclear powers, that's 102 countries that have the economic wherewithal to build nuclear weapons, but they, you know, they haven't done it. 
for some reason, you know, Gabon and uh, uh, you right. know, uh, various all these other small countries have decided they don't want to build nuclear weapons. And that ought to tell us something. Other people have looked at this objectively and said, I want to defend my country. I want to be safe. What can I do to defend my country? And they thought, well, I could build nuclear weapons. And they say, "Mm, nah. Right. And I, I think the problem is the reputation. You know, we got bought into nuclear weapons after Hiroshima. We said they're miracle weapons. We called them the winning weapon. Right. So, so the bad news is there are weapons that have almost no utility, and there are weapons that deter- – if we continue to rely on them for safety, if we continue to use deterrence, it will end up catastrophically. Okay. So that's the bad news. The good news is that according to the way nuclear techno- – the way all technology, all weapons evolve – once you realize that something is not very useful and very dangerous, you get rid of it. It's easy to get rid of. Do you know and, how long it took to negotiate the Convention on Biological Weapons? How long? Two years. Yeah. Okay. We're, you're making the argument that nuclear weapons are virtually useless militarily, dangerous because if you have to rely on them over the long run, you end up in catastrophe no one keeps tools, weapons, and other technology that are useless and dangerous. So where do we go from here? How do you get rid of them? If, if, I, came to, if I came to you and said, um, Kevin, I've got a great, great stove. You're going to love it. It's expensive, but it's the latest technology. Everybody has them. They're, they're very prestigious. And you said, oh, I don't know. And then you, you know, did some research and discovered that the stoves basically – can't boil water, and they have a tendency to self-ignite and burn down the house that they're in. <laughs> if I if I tried to sell you a stove like that, right. would you buy it? Right. And if you had one already and you found this out, would you keep it? And the answer is no, of course you wouldn't, because nobody keeps technology that's not very useful and is dangerous. And that's that. the good news is, all that has to happen on nuclear weapons is to have a change of perspective, to to take the the dark, imaginary, fearsome reputation that they have and strip it away using the scrub brush of reality. You know, reality is a powerful tool when survival is on the line. And if you explain to people what the reality is, and if you can convince them, then you know, it's a it's a different ball game. It yes, it's been you know fifty years of agonizing step by step negotiations to just bring the arsenals down a little. How can we ever get across the finish line when it's been so hard? To, well, the reason it's hard is because we imagine that nuclear weapons are this precious diamond that's you know more valuable than any other weapon. If it turns out they're lumps of coal, people will toss them over their shoulders without even thinking about it. Right. So here's here's what we want to do. I want to I want to launch a campaign in the United States that argues the reality that says, look, we got taken in by nuclear weapons, but now it's that's over. We need to face reality. We need to face the facts. Fact is, they're they're lousy weapons. And uh, when enough people believe that you get your 
president or Congress or whoever to issue a statement that says, we acknowledge here in the United States that nuclear weapons are obsolete, and we will work as our national policy to convince other countries. And then you work on other countries, and because reality is a powerful tool, and because the United States invented these weapons, so in theory we understand them and and know what their true value is. And by the way, you don't give up a single weapon. All you do is say they're obsolete. Right. And then when other countries start to, you know, the British would love to get rid of their nuclear weapons. Their 10% of their entire defense budget they spend on the three submarines that they use. And they they want actual troops that they can actually use so they can intervene in foreign countries alongside of us. Um, so they're a possible uh, the Indians, you know, Modi loves his authoritarianism, but the, fundamentally the Indians are much stronger than the Pakistanis, uh, their, their next-door neighbor rivals, conventionally. And, and, you know, if the Chinese were going to invade India, they'd have to come across the Himalayas. So it's kind of a difficult – so the Indians are potentially uh, a candidate. And um, – you know, the holy grail is China. China never thought very highly of nuclear weapons for a long time, for, I don't know, 40 years. The number of ICBMs, missiles they had that could reach the United States was 20 to zero. They thought nuclear weapons were just kind of a symbol thing, and all you had to do was have symbols. Lately, they've been building up their nuclear weapons, so maybe attitudes have changed. But they are a potential, potential ally in this. You build a coalition of countries that say, yeah, they're obsolete. Everybody should know it. And you, they keep their old weapons, but they start investing in drones or, you know. Cyber. Whatever the newest, right, cyber attacks, whatever yeah. the newest thing is. Right. AI, robots. And suddenly, if you're Kim Jong-un or, you know, you're, you're suddenly saying, wow, I wonder if I've invested in the wrong weapons. The U.S. leans on Israel, the Chinese lean on the Pakistanis and North Koreans, and now it's just the Russians. Yeah. And if the whole – all the world is saying, yeah, we've got to get rid of these weapons, eventually the Russians might come along too. But, you know, uh, it might not work. It might be that we'll all be destroyed by a catastrophic nuclear war. But we have nothing to lose. We, we The old approach we've been trying for the last 70 years has gotten us, gotten us nowhere. So – Here's a new way that we could potentially eliminate nuclear weapons, and that's power, powerful stuff, at least. Uh, and, you know, getting rid of nuclear weapons won't mean that the world will be perfect. It won't mean it'll be a, you know, a safe world. There'll still be wars, yeah. but it would give us an enormous shot of energy. It would make us feel like, you know, the country that sent men to the moon again. It would give us that confidence that has always been a trademark of the United States. And then we could probably take on climate change and really do serious work on it. Instead of fighting with one another, we could fight against the problems that we actually have. So in 60 so. seconds, you've got to tell us how you can get a Congress of the United States, uh, which is barely functional. Uh, to get their minds, or they don't even know what the internet is, how, and not to mention getting their minds around an issue as complex as this. How, how do you actually get it done? 
politically when people don't trust each other. You you go to the grassroots, you explain the reality, and you threaten to vote them out. If they don't don't support it, you just vote them out. It's just old-style grassroots political arm twisting. And eventually, if you convince Congress and you can convince a presidential candidate, then you've got You've got the United States, and then you can start working on the world. And as I say, it won't be easy. It's, you know, um, it won't be simple. But, you know, it's a lot more hopeful than sitting around saying, well, there'll just be a nuclear war someday, and I hope it doesn't happen while I'm alive. Right. It strikes me also, to to wrap up, that – this is kind of tailor-made for a Republican uh, president in, in a kind of an ironic uh, way. Uh, is sure. this a Nixon yeah. goes to a China of, kind of thing? Yeah. A lot of the big advances in nuclear – Ronald Reagan cut the nuclear arsenal in half. A lot yeah. of the best moves by have been Republicans. Have yeah. they, you know, they've led the way. Ward, so where can – how people can get involved. Where can people find you and where can they get the book? <laughs> They can get the book on Amazon, um, and they can find my, me and my organization at www.realistrevolt.org. We want to have a revolt of realists who come out and say, look, this is the reality. He's the author. The current he, he's, he's the author of It's Possible. A Future Without Nuclear Weapons. His name is Ward Hayes Wilson. Look him up, realistrevolt.com. Ward, thank you for joining us. Dot org. Thank you. Dot org. My apologies. (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis, and it's WDEV. 